Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. Well, hi, everybody. Flip Your Lid audience. Thank you for joining us. I have Josh Scott with me today. If he lived in Charlotte, he and I would be besties. But however, he lives in Nashville, near Nashville. He is a pastor, has been for a couple of decades. And his focus is on reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming faith through a progressive Christian lens. He lives near Nashville, as I stated, and his wife's name is Carla, and he has five kids that he knows of. So <laughs> we will leave it there. So Josh, thank you for being a part of the Lit audience. It's really good to see you. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the only question that's predetermined is just to throw this your way and let's just see where this goes. So we would like to know, start with what flipped your lid and what was an event or an experience and what have you had to do, what measures have you had to take in order to reconnect to who you really are? You know, when we were talking by email about that, um, there have been so many of those experiences that I would qualify mm-hmm. as being lid flipping moments. Right. But I think it really began sort of the moment that disrupted my entire life, the moment that disrupted s- s- the way I saw the world, the way mm-hmm. I understood the divine, those sorts of things would have been yeah. when I was 11 years old. My, my, um, my, so my grandfather was a free will Baptist pastor and free will Baptists are, um, really, really, uh, at, to call them conservative seems like an understatement, you yes, know, King, ja- King James <laughs> only, right. that, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. And, um, his mom, uh, my great grandmother, uh, was, so I lived between them. Mm. Um, my grandfather on the right and my great grandmother on the left, depending mm. on where you were standing in the ark. Right. Uh, my grandfather, so my great grandmother in uh, 93 in January, she passed away of cancer and it happened real suddenly. We, you know, went from not, you know, she just wasn't, wasn't feeling well. And then suddenly mm-hmm. she was in the hospital and then suddenly mm-hmm. she was gone. Wow. Um, then in July of the same year, my grandfather passed and he passed in a really dramatic way. Um, he was a pastor. We were at church. They had a, they had a yearly business meeting on Saturday nights. It was July of 93. Um, and he, it was a really contentious business meeting for some reason. And somebody said to him during the business meeting, you're the problem and you need to go away. Wow. And almost that instant, he had a massive heart attack and died. Wow, Josh. So, at, you know, I was 11 at the time, almost 12. Mm. And it was, I mean, it just completely wrecked me. And in every possible way. I mean, I lost the two people who were dearest to me in the world Mm -hmm. within, you know, seven months of each other. Mm -hmm. And then the way he passed and the the context surrounding it, where it happened in church. Right. um, You know, related to church. It was, I mean, even now when I think, when I tell people the story, they're like, that's like, you have to be embellishing some of that. And I'm really not. It's exactly, exactly what happened. Right. Wow. So I can just see like that. So now you're 11 and 12, which is, is, you know, not the easiest age to be lost two significant people. So tell me a little bit more about how that reshaped or you had to 
reinventing yourself when it comes to your faith, knowing that you lost your grandfather and it's all related and connected. Again, just looking from an 11-year-old's point of view, how do you reshape that? Yeah, well, at the time I didn't. I mean, I, I developed so many, like I, I can remember being so afraid um, that anybody I was close to would die. Mm. Like that, like that, that was a phobia I developed, like a, 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 you know, out of that trauma. Right. I can remember being, you know, 12 years old and, and sort of army crawling through the house, across the house, just to get to outside of my parents' bedroom, just to listen in the night to make mm. sure they were still breathing. Wow. Yeah, that's trauma. And that's trauma. And, um, you know, I really decided that if God was real, that, that God wasn't good. Yeah. And so I went through, uh, you know, I, I didn't say it out loud. I never told anybody really, but sort of either either being an atheist or just not caring about God, like thinking mm. if God is real, God doesn't deserve my energy, right. my time. And so I can remember my mom taking me to school in the morning, being in middle school and her talking to me about God in, in my, you know, in my brain, I'm rolling my eyes at her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just sort of like, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, I was, I was, you know, taught not to use um, certain words. So I wouldn't even use those words in my brain at that point, but mm. as close as I could get to them, <laughs> like, that's, you know, um, and, you know, I, I, if you want me to, I can get more into how sort of I came out of that process. But really for mm. me, it was a several year period of um, either waffling between not believing there was a God or hoping that there wasn't a God mm -hmm. because it made more sense for the world the tragedy of the world began to make more sense to me if there wasn't a God who was a part of it. Right. Right. Yeah, that absolutely. Yeah. It makes complete sense. And plus also being at home, I would think would then be a trigger for you because they lived, you lived in between both of them. All right. And so yeah. like, where could you go? What could you do to not feel the grief, to not feel the pain? Did you go into self-harm? Did you go into some path to try to not feel that level of trauma and grief? You know, I think if I did anything, it was, uh, I, I've always, and it's a, it's been a thing I've had to deal with and become better at over the years, but I, I just didn't have a lot of people I was close to. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think yeah. I tried to limit mm -hmm. who I, who was in that a certain level of closeness to me because if people got close, I mean, of course, at that age, mm -hmm. um, immediately saying, well, I get close to people and they die. Right. So maybe me being close to people is the problem. Uh, and so maybe, and so even, you know, I, I can look back on high school and I had some friends, but I didn't have close friends. And I didn't, you know, like some people look back on their formative years like that. Um, and even in, like I look back on my college years and there are people I, you know, I, I really am not still close to anybody from that mm -hmm. time of my life. Now, what's been fun in the last several years is the few of us um, from my high school era who have ended up being progressives have found each other. And that has been a mm -hmm. gift. Yeah. But otherwise I just didn't have any of that, you know, sort of, when you think of your best friend in high school, I just don't, you know, right. I, I don't know that anybody would think of me that way. Right. Um, I, I just, everything was on the surface. Right. So you did certain things, keep people at a distance to not feel, cause you don't get connected. You don't get hurt if there's a loss. And what I did was just be shy. Like the, what's yeah. funny is I, I'm an, I don't, you don't know if you know much about the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram oh, well, I'm, seven. An, I'm an Enneagram expert in my opinion. Probably okay. not true, but I'm an Enneagram eight. Okay. We are the best so, number. I'm just saying. I, I'm a seven. Right. And, um, you know, uh, but I'm also somewhat growing up. I was somewhat of an introvert and shy. Mm -hmm. So once I'm, once I get out there, I'm full on Enneagram seven. Yeah. 
Um, but I was shy. And so I just didn't talk to people very much. You know, I just sort of, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think, you know, I didn't do things like act out to get people away from me. I just kept everything yeah. really, really tight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so you brought up that your high school friends now are, are progressives. Can you define that for us and talk a little bit what it means to be progressive? And yeah. if you could throw some information out there for people about kind of how you and I got connected was that your ordination was stripped away recently and you were very open about that on Facebook. And so can we yeah. kind of go through those two? Yeah. So when I talk about, prog- when I say I'm a progressive Christian, what I mean is I'm a Christian who, I mean, I could go through the several things, you know, I, I don't take everything literally. I don't take the Bible literally. I love the Bible. The Bible is a vital part of, of, you know, I've given my entire life to studying and teaching it. I love it. Mm. Don't take it all literally. Um, I would say, I don't believe the Bible's inerrant and fallible. That would be a piece of that. But I would also say it has to do with this understanding that our faith is ever unfolding and ever evolving. That um, everything that needs to be said hasn't been said in the past. Mm. And so it is this willingness and openness and almost uh, passion to continue exploring, continue learning, continue growing, letting go of things that no longer serve us well. Right. Um, and then em- em- embracing something new that maybe is, is mm. the next phase of the journey. Um, and, you know, I've been uh, what I would call a progressive Christian. I've probably been there for about a decade. I, you know, when people ask me, when did your sort of unraveling deconstruction journey begin? I always say it began when I was 11 years old. Yeah. But it kickstarted again in earnest after, you know, I started preaching when I was around 16. Mm. So um, I'm going to be 40 this weekend. And so that's a long time. I've been more than 20 years at this thing. Mm. Um, And, uh, but so in my early twenties, I started what I would consider deconstructing, um, being aware of it. Like, Oh, my faith, something's happening to all of the stuff I've been taught. Mm. I have to believe. Um, And so, you know, when I was, uh, I grew up, after we became, we left the Free Old Baptist Church shortly after my grandfather passed, and we went liberal, became Southern Baptist. Believe it or not, that was considered that's a liberal, liberal move. Yeah, right. That's a liberal move. Um, and I was ordained there when I was twenty. And just so, and to be fair, uh, you know, they they rescinded my my home church voted and sent me a letter and rescinded my organization my ordination this past summer. To be fair, a couple things. One, I didn't consider that my ordination anymore right. anyway. Right. I mean, we, we departed and two, uh, you know, it was, it's, it's within their rights to do. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't believe the Bible's in it infallible. I'm affirming and perform LGBTQ plus weddings. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many reasons for them to do that. Right. The thing that was hurtful about it to me was that they didn't even reach out to me to talk to me because if mm-hmm. they had, they wouldn't have had to done a churchwide vote. Yeah. I would have just gladly um, given it mm-hmm. to them and and acknowledged that we've parted ways. And mm. what was hurtful was some of the very names on my ordination were the names on the letter. Mm. Uh, people, somebody on that letter, I baptized when I was wow. at that church, you know, yeah. my home church. And so for me, it was not even about the fact that they wanted to make a public sort of, we need, to, you know, we, we, we can't have, it, we can't have your stink on us at all. And I would right. get that. It was sort of the way they did it in the unfeeling and uncaring way, which to me is one of them. I mean, one of the major issues of conservative Christianity is they put doctrinal purity over like mm-hmm. actual human beings, yeah. which Jesus continually did the opposite of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's so, so well said. And, and just the idea of, because them doing that is part of the overall problem. So many people are having, it's why 67 million people in the past two years, my understanding statistically have left 
the church is because it's about power and yeah. not loving someone in power, right? Yeah. Or just being, or using love as power. It becomes about being yeah. powerful. Yep, power over yeah. versus power with or power for or power That's under. Right. Or there's so many. I mean, power is is not a bad thing if right. it's used well, and if it's used for the purpose mm-hmm. of of coming alongside those who don't have it. Right. <laughs> But okay. what often happens is, you know, uh, I mean, so much of American culture is built on greed anyway, and, and we just want more and more and more yeah. for our own benefit. Right. You know, it's, it's a lot to say, you know, that the Bible is, because um, you know, we were taught this inherent in that it's, every word is true. And that if you, and I wasn't even raised in the church, and I still have been taught, if I believe anything in the Bible, if I question any of it, then yeah. automatic ticket to hell. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So really, for you to you to be able to speak publicly about that, and I subscribe to your email and different things, and I suggest anyone do that because even if someone doesn't agree with what you're saying, if I'm confident in what I believe, I can bring in other information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But we are taught to not bring in other information. Yeah. I mean, one of the criticisms I hear, even from family, is, "Well, you remember when you first started preaching? You used to say that you should really only read the Bible." Yeah, I said that because that's what they told me. Right. right. But I was also 16. Why are you listening to me tell you what you should do with your life? I'm 16. Yeah, 16. I'm yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the reality is I learned very, very like, you know, uh, I learned that you actually, everybody's using something to interpret the Bible, whether that's your pastor's lens mm-hmm. or your neighbor's lens or your grandpa's lens or, you know, mm-hmm. you're using some, somebody's giving you away and saying, because the reality is, if if everybody saw the Bible the same way and there was one interpretation, we wouldn't have more than 30,000 denominations. Very true. And we wouldn't have multiple biblical canons. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the idea that we sort of live with this Protestant exceptionalism, where for me growing up Protestant, like our Bible canon is the Bible canon. Well, actually, Catholics have more books in, yeah, you know, they, they include the deuterocanonical books. And there's an actual, right. actually a, a church called the Ethiopian Talahito Church that has more than 80 books in their canon. And they're wow. Christian. Right. And so if we're making, and then you have to deal with the fact that for the first few hundred years of the Christian, what became Christianity, they didn't have a canon. They didn't have a Bible. They had, they had, they didn't even have a full Hebrew Bible. I mean, the Hebrew right. Bible wasn't fully canonized until the year 100 CE yeah. in our era. Mm. So, I mean, this idea that, well, without the Bible, I love the Bible. I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, I hope I, my dying breath is some, teaching somebody the Bible. I love it. Right. But, but. Uh, the idea that our faith hinges on it and only it, and that it is the most important piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. just ignores basically all the evidence. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, what's it been like to you to, to be at Grace Point Church, right? To be there? Are you the founder of that church? And so, the people kind of followed you where you were, or did it become progressive in time? People came more open. So, I, I came to Grace Point when Grace Point was a progressive church. Um, okay. So a guy named Stan Mitchell, who um, has gone on to, he, he does a thing called Everybody Church Now with um, Ray Waters in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he's an LGBTQ plus uh, advocate and ally. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of his work centers on that. But so I, you know, I got to know Stan. Uh, I was in a church in rural Kentucky, uh, leading that church to become mm-hmm. progressive. So when I became the pastor of the church, it was, you know, an, a community church and, you know, all community churches are sort of like, fundamentalist Baptist churches with better me- music generally. With better music, yeah. Um, and, and so that was what we were. 
Um, but I was going through this process of, uh, you know, of my faith. When I took the job at 23, was there for 14 years, and I took the job and I was unraveling. I knew I wanted to be a pastor, but I also knew that everything was falling apart for me, mm-hmm. faith-wise. Um, and so eventually I was able to articulate that to the elders and say that, you know, I'm LGBTQ plus affirming. My faith has changed in all these key issues. I'm going to tell you what that is. And then you can make a decision about what you do with it. You know, if that is, I need to resign. If that is, this is Mm -hmm. a journey we're all going to go on. And to their credit, they said, this is a journey we're going to take as a church. Now they also, a good chunk of them ended up leaving as a result of it anyway. Right. But I led this church from, and I mean, if Kentucky's a red state, this, whatever the deepest red is, this county we were in was that kind of conservative mm-hmm. fundamental. Um, and we went through the process of becoming an affirming church and becoming mm-hmm. a progressive church. And, and so after I'd been there 14 years, Stan was leaving Grace Point and said, Hey, would you consider applying for the position here? I, I think that you would be a good fit. And I knew great. We knew each other. I knew Grace Point. We didn't live far apart. We're about an hour mm-hmm. and a half away from each other. And, um, it just ended up being a great fit. And mm-hmm. and so I've been at Grace Point two and a half years now going on three. That's great. And just, I absolutely love it. Yeah, that's wonderful. So how did you get to a point? Because, you know, just to to be heterosexual and to not, I assume that's not a struggle whatsoever for you. Um, and again, it's only a struggle for those of us who are told that we're, that something's wrong with us, right? That's, that's yeah. the only reason it becomes a struggle. But, you know, just for you to get to a point that you're not only affirming, openly affirming so much so that I saw recently that you had a panel of wonderful people um, who are a part of the, the, the gay alphabet. Right. And people, you know, being a part, and I saw on Instagram, you were posting, people were attacking y'all bringing up scripture, which obviously means I haven't really studied the scripture, but, but on the surface, that's what it says. Right. But unless you study right. it and understand it. So how did you get to a point? Cause you didn't have to get there and yet you got there. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, you know, I get asked this question a lot, and uh, I, I feel like, you know, there's, in some ways, I feel like my, both my wife and I ended up just realizing together that we were affirming, if that makes sense, like, is that mm-hmm. we would start to have friends coming out to us, and we would yeah. sort of be like, oh, yeah, we, we're, we're so happy for you, and we support you, and we want you to, you know, we want you to have everything that we want for us. Yeah. Um, but I had, I had a memory the other day that came back to me from, um, so Jay, you know who Jay Baker is? Yes. Yes. So Jay had a show on, I forget what channel, AMC, A&E, he had like a, a sort of a reality show around him mm-hmm. several years ago, I mean like 10 years ago or more. And, uh, I, so I started following Jay and I remember on social media, which was pretty new then Twitter. Hmm. Jay would tweet and he would ask the question, are you affirming? And I remember that was the first time I thought, what does that mean? Are you Mm -hmm. affirming? Like affirming Mm -hmm. of what? And so then I started looking into it and I was like, oh, I I think, I think maybe I am. And I don't know why I am. I I, I know that everything I've been taught says I'm not. But I also have this sense that I've been meeting people who are coming out who I know them and I know their lives and I know that they're deeply faithful, wonderful people. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't feel like I can reject them. I don't feel like I can label them as somehow other than, than me, other than a friend, a brother, a sister, a sibling. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, and so, you know, it was, you know, I know I have, I know people like it was a struggle for them to become affirming. And now what I did have to do is I did have to then deal with the Bible. 
Yes. Um, so for me, you know, and I feel like this is, there's an actually biblical pattern for this uh, that shows up again and again, which is ha- people have an experience that is outside of what they've been taught. Mm-hmm. That experience transforms them. And then they have to go back to the Bible to make sense of like, what do I, how do I yeah. talk about this to other people who are going to say, but the Bible says. Right. And so that for me was a longer journey of wrestling with those, you know, six, seven texts mm-hmm. that are the, known as the clobber passages right. and figuring out how do I address them and how do I deal with them? Um, and so that was a bit longer, but I, you know, I, I was affirming before mm-hmm. I actually dealt with the Bible around it. Right. Right. It's just knowing that Jesus came he came a human to affirm all humans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And just the, the idea of not, not love. And I think it's in, I think it's in John 15 where Jesus says, I've, I've shown you and told you everything the father has told me to share with you. And like that, like I, that cleanses me because there's nothing about sexual orientation in his teachings. You know, yeah. he, he taught about, people and so just the idea that again when, when i die when i go to heaven that it's not about sexual orientation or gender or my eye color right like it's really thinking what actually goes to heaven right because if it's about all those things that's so that's so what ties us to the earth it's not about our soul and you know i the one of the scriptures that helped me greatly was um acts chapter 10 Mm-hmm. which is where Simon Peter has this vision of a sheet that gets dropped down and mm-hmm. there are all these animals on it. And he's told by God in a, you know, this voice, get up, kill and eat. He's like, I've never, those are unclean animals. I've never, and happens three times. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. Whew, and good. for me, that text yeah. was that, that thing of he's having an experience. Right. That then he's going to have to go figure out what to do with it. And of course they begin wrestling with how do we include Gentiles based on scripture? Because we believe we've had experiences of God working in Gentiles. We've experienced the spirit present in the life and work of Gentiles. We right. can't exclude them any longer. What do we do with the Bible? And, I, you know, that mm-hmm. that was very similar to my experience of mm-hmm. God is at work in the LGBTQ plus community. There is LGBTQ Christians are just as Christian as I'm Christian. Mm-hmm. Actually, in many ways, many of them are more so <laughs> than, than me. And so it was, okay, I've got, now I've got to do some wrestling with scripture because um, and fully willing to say, even if I can't figure this out in the Bible, I know what I've experienced. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I trust that if the spirit is moving in this way, I'm going to be on the side of spirit. Yeah, absolutely. All the way. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. What's, what's been the most surprising or even shocking thing for you as a pastor of, you know, a progressive movement? How sometimes you end up still being caught like, um, you know, obviously conservatives aren't going to like you, but there, there have just been times when like non-religious progressives are, are really angry and hostile as well. Hmm. And I'm like, I think we probably agree on way more. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like as a progressive yeah. Christian, I feel like I have more in common with progressive Muslims or progressive Jews or progressive Buddhists than I do right. conservative Christians, right? right. Because right. we're approaching our faith with a similar ethos in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's just the, that reality for me has been really surprising is that, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's still like, there, there just can be so much hostility coming from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's been, that's been a little disappointing, but mm-hmm. I also get it because so many people who, um, who, who lean left, who lean progressive 
who are who are now not probably at one point where really just were so deeply wounded by religion. So yeah. I also try to igno- like just honor like so much of what they're feeling is not about me and it's not mm-hmm. about Grace Point. It is about their mm-hmm. own their own serious um, mm-hmm. uh, church trauma, which is a very right. real sure. painful. I mean, we all have you know if you've been in church at some point, you probably have some of that, whether you know right. it or not. Right. Well, even that's part of how you started questioning was be 11 years old and have religion, religious trauma. Yep. Right. To have people yep. treat each other that way. Right. Yep. And just to just and I wonder if that's part of your beautiful empathy and compassion that you have of just knowing that most people who are walking around who have taken the time to doubt because, you know, it's Brian Mc, um, Lauren, I think this says that the only way to get to the next level of your faith is to doubt. And I think that's an amazing statement, right? And but to to do that means you will have religious trauma if you openly talk with people about that you're questioning certain things in the Bible. People become incredibly scared, and then they defend and deflect. Yeah, which is, I mean, their response is also a response, a, a trauma response. It's a response right. of if I if I don't have this right, I'm going to literally spend eternity being tortured. Right. Um, one of the one, an interesting text for me lately has been the story. You know, Matthew twenty eight, what we call the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. But there's this moment when Jesus meets them on the mountaintop after he's been raised up, and it says in most English tra- translations, it'll say something like, "They worshipped, but some doubted." Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the word "some" is not there in Greek. The actual language is they worshipped and doubted. Oh wow. The, it's not two That's groups amazing. of people. You have That's some amazing. over here worshiping yeah. and some doubting. In at present within these yeah. folks who are experiencing this this Jesus after his death, there are people who are going yes, but also really. I mean, it reminds me of the story in the Gospels where the, Jesus says, "Every you know, the man has a sick child, and he wants Jesus to heal him." And Jesus yeah. says, "Well, everything's possible for those who believe." And he's like, "Well, I believe, right. but help my unbelief." All right? Yeah. It's like I think I think the most honest place we can ever exist is. I believe, maybe I want to believe, I'm, I'm, I'm working mm-hmm. on belief, mm-hmm. but there's still unbelief, there's still doubt present, and it doesn't seem to be a problem for Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, I find it amazing, I'm sure my testimony of a lot of people, have, you know, I was drinking and drugging that people kept telling me about this God who sent his son, that I was worthy of his son being crucified and resurrected, and that that that, that God, that father was going to help me and get me out of alcoholism and help me know that I deserve better. Well, at some point I believed that and got sober and became a Christ follower. And then I was told, well, now you have to earn (laughs) your status and your salvation and how God feels about you. And this whole picture of always seeking approval and having to do more in the church for the father. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that it was just tough to fight against that lie, which I now believe a lie. And then, then to come out, you know, as, as gay married to a woman and then to all of a sudden be told that I'm not worthy of being on stage anymore. Right. That now I've lost any worth I've had to earn for these 26 yep. years. I now have lost by becoming more of who I am. Yeah. 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 I mean, people are being forced to choose between, at least it feels like to them because that's what their conservative churches are making them do mm-hmm. is choose between being your fullest, most authentic self. Yeah. And, and being part of our group. That's right. And is it, I think it was Irenaeus who said, and if it's not Ignatius, Irenaeus, somebody with their name started with an I said, <laughs> the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Mm-hmm. That's good. And so 
you know, when people ask me, what is your hermeneutic? What is the interpretive? What is your interpretive lens? How do you make decisions? Human flourishing, human flourishing, because I think that is ultimately um, us becoming all we can be us being our fullest, truest selves Mm. is the thing that I think we were put Mm. in this world to do. Yeah. So to, to say to somebody who, who you love or, you know, any, any of those things that the LGBTQ community hears on a regular basis, that you're actually right. violating the image of God in them when you tell them there's something wrong with them. You're actually mm-hmm. violating the image of God in them, in them when you don't say, you know what? Uh, yes, pursue that journey. We're going right. to celebrate you. We'll yeah. march in the pride parade with you. Right. We, will, we will be your place of safety yeah. where you can, you can be your fullest and truest self. I mean, yeah. that's what the church should be. Yeah, but your your courage in not just stating that you're living that you're helping people know they're allowed to walk in to a church and be openly celebrated. You know that really it's incredibly courageous because there are people who are privately affirming, but they can't be publicly affirming in the church because they will lose members and then they'll lose money. And that well, seems to be what it comes back to. You know, it doesn't. Uh, I'll say more about this in a second. It doesn't feel courageous at all to me. It, mm. It feels like I'm late to the party. Um, but for so many people, like uh, when I have pastors reach out and they're thinking about doing this, becoming affirming in their churches, you know, what I'm now like, it's such a privilege to be able to have the discussion about whether or not you'll do something yeah. when they're actual humans who yeah. are just trying to survive yeah, by being right. honest about who they are. That's so right. it, it really, you know, to me, like th- this whole thing about whether or not a church becomes affirming mm. and pri- being privately affirming, that is such a privilege. Yeah, that that's right. Folks so, in the LGBTQ plus community don't have. So yeah. it doesn't feel courageous to me. I don't feel like mm-hmm. I've done anybody any favors. And I think mm-hmm. I said this Sunday in that panel, I feel like what I am doing now is I'm coming, no, I, I'm not making space at the table. I'm coming to a table that is full of my LGBTQ plus siblings because mm-hmm. it's rightfully theirs. And I'm asking mm-hmm. them to give me a seat. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I was, good. I was, I was wrong for such a long time. Yeah. Um, or, or too scared, right? Living in that privilege of being too scared about being honest mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what I believed. And so now I feel like I'm just trying to make up for lost time. Yeah, that's, that's such a beautiful statement. But I can, you can, I can feel that. Like you've got emotion around that. Like it really means something to you to be at that table. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I feel like um, this is where I get the sense that the spirit is at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people who have been rejected and wounded and harmed and when, you know, through, through just being excluded or through mm-hmm. the evil of conversion therapy, like all mm-hmm. these things that people mm-hmm. have been through. And when a person in the LGBTQ plus community comes to grace point or they come to me and they trust me, mm-hmm. yeah. they trust me as a safe place. They trust mm-hmm. our church that as much as they've been wounded, I mean, grace point really is not just for LGBTQ plus folks, but for lots of folks who've been wounded by religion and, and hurt. Mm-hmm. Grace Point is their last stop on the way out. Mm-hmm. Um, their next stop is what, uh, I love what John Shelby Spawn called uh, the Church Alumni Association. Yeah. Like they're done after this. And right. so I take, like, this is mm-hmm. a sacred trust that is being placed in us mm-hmm. um, for them to come into the space or to reach out to me and to share who they are and then right. sort of say, I'm trusting that this is going to be what you say it is. Yeah. Like that feels like such a sacred trust. And I, we take yeah. it so seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it just feels like I'm being given the gift. 
Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you saying that and your sincerity in what you're saying. And, and I think it's just a matter of like, you know, I'm sure your church, like in, if you're an immigrant, you can be there. If you have a certain blemished history, you can be there. Like it's, it's just, there's such an openness that's there, but because of that, other people don't invite you to the table, right? I assume there's certain places you can't just like now I'm not allowed to speak certain places. I assume now you're not allowed to speak and you're not invited to certain places only because you're actually loving the marginalized people. You know, there, there have been costs to that, you know, uh, family relationships are awkward. Mm-hmm. I've had to limit who in my family I can allow around my social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've had to limit, um, you know, I've lost, I mean, probably, you know, some of the hardest relationships, even harder than familiar relationships for me was, you know, when the person who'd been my pastor, who gave me the opportunity to start preaching, who taught me everything I knew up to a certain point, um, when he sort of broke up with me over email, Mm. um, that was tough. That's tough. Yeah. But, you know, again, my, what I've experienced is not a drop in the ocean. Yeah. And so. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. My, my friend Stan Mitchell often says, if you are standing in solidarity with someone and you're not being hit by the rocks that are being thrown at them, you're probably not standing close enough. Ooh, I like this Stan Mitchell. This is, that's good. You, you would that's love Stan. Good. Yeah, that's um, good. You should talk to him. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah so that's that. sort of my, like, I, I don't feel like, you know, everybody's got scars. Everybody's, you know, mm-hmm. has, has loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, to, to get into a little bit of a Pauline language, like I consider it, I, I consider all loss gain. Yes. Um, yeah. To be, yeah. uh, to be hopefully a little bit more in step with what I think the spirit of God is doing in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to be able to look my kids in the eye when it's all said and done and say, wasn't perfect. I, I you know, I, I know as progressive and as forward thinking as I try to be, mm-hmm. future generations are going to look at people like me and they're so going to say, can you believe they still ate meat? Right. Can you still believe yeah. they, you know, yeah. we're, we're going to be wrong on so many things. And I'm, right. I'm, I want, if I'm alive to see that, I want to embrace the critique, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I want to be able to say to my kids around issues of justice, around the LGBTQ plus community, around standing against white supremacy and systemic racism around those right. issues that really is against misogyny. Right. Um, I want to be able to say that I did everything I could Yeah. because I, I want them to do everything they can. In yeah, that's time. so good. That's so good. And, I, I, and you know, my, you know, as an as an eight, I don't have a lot of feelings. You know, we're in the aggressive stance. We don't feel as much as other people, but I can feel that, and I appreciate that. And it's just part of you being Enneagram Seven. The advantage of of being the person in aggressive stance who is a forward thinker, right? And so there's there's so much that you're taking in that that feels probably very natural to you, and using to help other people that it wouldn't be natural for. And that's 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 beautifully impressive to me. Oh, that's very kind of you. And I'm not kind a whole lot, so go with that, right? Yeah. Two on that, because it's the last thing, nice thing I'm gonna say ever. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is about it is about social justice, right? It's about that we can do our part and I love what you said, Stan said, like we've got to be close enough so that we get hit too. Right. If someone else is being harmed, like at what point is it really about being there for our neighbor opposed to in thought being there for our neighbor? Yeah. Otherwise, it's just performative. That's right. You know, you know what I mean? Otherwise, yeah, it it's is. just performative. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I, that, that to me is 
sort of when activism or any sort of thing like that goes tragic, which is when it becomes about the person doing it. Um, And it tends to be, you know, a straight white cisgender male who Mm -hmm. ends up wanting all the credit. (laughs) So I'm very aware of the social situation I occupy in the world or I try to be most of the time. Right. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that per, there, there is no space for performative anything. Mm-hmm. Like it, it mm-hmm. is about being in this with people and right. working toward sort of that li- the liberation of all of us, because yes. anybody who's being oppressed, um, mm-hmm. the, the oppressors are oppressing themselves. Right. And there, there is this other way of being where we're all free to be who we are and transformed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. everybody has what they need. And, uh, you know, I think Jesus called that vision, the kingdom of God. Yeah. And I still think yes. that that is a pretty, pretty good vision for the world. And that's why yeah. I've given my energy to try help see that bit by bit, increment by increment, hopefully mm-hmm. at least in my immediate area where I have right. something I can do about it, you know, see that become a reality. Yeah, absolutely. And so in, in your, your preaching and, and just your intentionality with, with people, you know, one of the things you're doing is talking right now openly on, on social media about five misconceptions of the Bible and deconstruction and reconstruction. And so is there some of those five mi- misconceptions do you think would help our audience for those of us who have for a variety, a plethora of reasons been harmed by the church? Sure. I mean, you know, so uh, this past week I talked about um, how the Bible is inerrant and infallible. It's the mm-hmm. misconception is that somehow the Bible dropped out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, leather right. bound, gilded edges with my name on it. King James Version, you know, because right. you got to have the version. You got to have the same language Jesus spoke, right? Right. right. And uh, and it's just not the case. Um, and, you know, in the piece yesterday, I, I, I argue for a different way of seeing the Bible as a product of community, as a product of mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. that is still beautiful and it shows sort of a trajectory forward. Mm-hmm. But if we get lost in trying to affirm everything the Bible affirms, then we can be in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, what I'm going to write about next week is this whole idea that, um, I, you know, uh, this whole idea of being biblical. Like, what does that even mean? Because yeah. lots of things are biblical mm-hmm. um, and lots of contradicting things are biblical. You can, you can make a good case from the Bible that mm-hmm. killing your enemies is the way to go. Yes. It's true. You can also make, I think, the, a good case from the Bible, and it is the way we should go, which is loving your enemies and nonviolence is the path forward. Right, right. Um, they're both in there. Right. And so, when, you know, you can make a case that biblical marriage involves a person, a man, a woman, their concubine, his concubine, right. Right. and any number of, uh, you know, prisoners of war he happens to bring home. And right. like, so, I mean, this whole idea of being biblical, it's, it really is kind of a straw man. Mm-hmm. That takes our attention away from actually wrestling with what is the Bible and how do we use it in a way that is ethical and how do we engage it in a way that uh, doesn't just cement us in the past, but a way that propels us forward. Mm. It is about being propelled forward. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And I think the work you're doing is crucial. I know that when I um, can hear Someone shared, particularly my, my pastor's name is Naeem, and he's was great Muslim, and now obviously he's a Christian. And so when he shares about history he knows from the Middle East and applying that to the Bible in different content of something, people are very apt to hear that and believe that. But if you take that same type of philosophy of more content, more history into something that's comfortable for people, 
like what marriage is. That is where, for some reason, people automatically say heresies, automatically don't believe the person and start pulling away. Yeah. One of my favorite critiques I've heard is when people say, well, you know, you're just telling people what they want to hear. I don't want to go to church and be told what I want to hear. Actually, what they're saying is the opposite. Right. I'm not telling them what they want to hear. Right. They do want to go to church and be told what they want to hear. Um, right. yeah. But they, yeah. they've sort of been told that by, you know, um, yeah. and this whole idea of, well, I'm not telling you what I, my opinion. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Right. The Bible doesn't say anything. Yeah. We make the Bible say. That's right. The Bible That's has right. to be interpreted. Yeah. And so there are a lot of preachers out there who are, I hope unintentionally, mm-hmm. but doing some, you know, um, it's some kind of like icky, uh, uh, it's it's just icky is a theological term for me. Yeah, um, I like it. I like the theological term. You know, this sort of thing where they're they're sort of making claims of well, I'm not I'm not biased and mm-hmm. I'm not interpreting. I'm just telling you the facts. Mm-hmm. When actually everything is an interpretation. There are no yeah. facts. Yeah. If there are facts, we don't have access to them because it is impossible for a human being to be objective. Yes, you know. Well, there's too much implicit bias. Too much. Right. Yeah, so and much confirmation bias and yes. Well, we all have um, auto autobiographical. Well, how do I put this? Like, so much of our memory within our body is done um, preverbal, and so so your reaction to someone's frowning at you can be because that's how your grandfather looked at you, and you don't know that's why you get upset, right? Because it is implicit. It's it's within you know it's within our um, the imprint within our autonomic nervous system, and so that is why everyone is biased. Every experience you've had comes into that moment. Yep. And, and that can be used for good. That can be used for, for comfort. Sure. And, you know, becoming aware of the lenses we have on, you know, I'm wearing contacts right now. And I'm, yeah. when, the, when there's nothing wrong with them, I don't even know they're there. Right. Um, and that's how it is with our worldview. It's how it is yeah. with our, the lens yeah, through which good. we read the Bible, through the lens through which mm-hmm. we see our neighbor. Mm-hmm. through which we interpret things. And mm-hmm. so becoming aware, for me, becoming aware of the bias um, and the lens that I have mm-hmm. as a straight white cisgender American male. Right. And there are times I'm not aware of it, of course, mm-hmm. but trying to be conscious and aware of that specifically in the way I engage the Bible, right? Because yeah. the Bible was written by people who were the opposite of me in every possible way. almost. Yes. People who were on the underside of power, people who weren't privileged, but people who were again and again being mistreated and oppressed. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it is to come to the Bible. You know, I generally now have this, like when I'm my initial interpretation of a text, I'm like, I hold that in suspicion hmm. just to, just till I can vet it against all the privilege and all the, That's good. Yeah. the just the stuff that I bring into the world that, right. that is tied to my social situation. Yeah, no, that's really good. So, you know, I, I specialize in trauma and, and shame. For most of us have trauma, gets shame gets very intertwined with it, especially on the age of eight. And I bring that up because I, I believe that because we all have a history stored within us of shame, that, and there's, and many parents will shame us for having needs or shame us for desires, that when a pastor does it, another person on authority does it, there's a comfort. There's just many area that happens for people. And I think that's why they're saying, I don't want to go to church and just hear what I want to hear. And they actually is hear what they want to hear because there's a comfort to a uh, comfortability of thinking 
if I can suppress my natural desires, if I can stay within this box, then I'm a good kid. Yeah. And where the shame becomes, it, it, it does, it's not, the shame continues to wound us, but in the moment, it's sort of like, that's what I needed. Yeah. I needed to feel bad about myself. That's right. That's right. Uh, as, a, as opposed to actually, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. You, you being fully alive and fully yourself and fully free would be the greatest gift you could give the world. Yes. Yes. Um, but, you know, there's a, that whole thing about if you leave church feeling good about yourself, then something's wrong. Yes. Whereas <laughs> I, when somebody says to me, I left Grace Point feeling better about myself than I did when I came in, I'm like, yes. Yeah. For that person, right. we did our right. job today. We reminded yeah. them that they were beloved. We reminded right. them that they were in the image of God. Yeah. That's the word, isn't it? Beloved. Yeah. Right. That we are beloved. And the idea of knowing that, because that is really when we're expanding the kingdom. That's what's attractive to the non-believer is that we are we are in love and we are able to receive love. We can offer it and we can receive it. That's and that takes effort, right? And yeah. so this idea that I that in certain churches, if I'm very against myself, then I will be elevated in the church. Yeah. That's yeah. so heartbreaking, isn't it? That it is. This 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 faith that should be about bringing up about our whole, most whole, fully integrated selves mm-hmm. is the thing that has ended up causing so many people to feel broken and disintegrated. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. So what is your vision with your church? What is, again, I know that you are, my word, courageous and, and feeling, wanting everyone to know there's a table to come to, that there truly is an open table, that there really is hope for all. So in, in that, what's your vision? How do you go towards that? And how, do you, how are you involving your members with, towards that vision? You know, Grace Point has become, over the last year, the pandemic forced us online. And so over the last year, we really did become a global community. We have people in Europe. We have people in Canada. Mm-hmm. We have people um, all over the United States. And of course, here in Nashville. And so just... I like to think of creating pockets of resistance all over the place. Mm, yeah. Resistance against hate, resistance yeah. against, you know, homophobia, misogyny, mm. white mm. supremacy. Like this is these are the things we're working on. So I like to think of, you know, and I hear from people all the time who are asking, can we can you start a grace point here? Can you start a grace yeah. point over there? Can you right. and I, yeah, I don't know what the future looks like in terms of that. I know that we want to help this movement, uh, this progressive Christian movement, this movement of being LGBTQ plus affirming. We want to see this thrive. And so mm-hmm. as we think about our future, it is also beyond just our own community. How do we help other communities? I, I talk and meet with pastors, um, I, you know, generally on Zoom, but way more um, than anybody would possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some are sort of in a Nicodemus situation where they're sneaking out at night and just saying, <laughs> hey, this is what I'm struggling with. Some are in the throes of this journey. Um and that, that is, you know, um, uh, that is such a gift to be trusted for, to, to be involved in those conversations. Mm-hmm. So I really do have a, a, you know, part of my heart, part of my goal is to be able to be a good resource for pastors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm only 40, uh, so I'm not super old, but I've been in this for a long time now. Yeah. This is my yeah. 24th year uh, doing right. this stuff. And 
I feel like I've, you know, got experience that I, I can share. And um, so, you know, I see part of that as my role too, as being uh, not only pastors, but I have folks from all over the world who reach out who mm. are, you know, whether they're trying to figure out, you know, can you connect me with somebody to help me figure out how to come out or can, you know, can right. you just listen to me, share my story? Can, yeah. Um, I think one of the things we long for as human beings is just to be heard. Absolutely. And, and just to know we're not alone. To be heard and, so, and be seen. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we have all sorts of hopes and dreams for what Grace Point could be and do yeah. in the world. And we're just going to keep taking those opportunities as they come and tr- try to make sure that however, whatever we do, that we leave the world better than we in better shape than we find in it right now. Well, you're definitely doing that. Josh, how do you self-connect with all this going on and being a pastor is an incredibly hard job, right? So how are, how are you self-caring? What do you do to make sure you stay connected to who you really are? Um, I love, I love reading. Well, I also have five kids, so there's really never a dull moment. Um, but you know, I love reading. I'm, um, I like, uh, I like, I watch sports Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I'm not great at meditation. I try. Yeah. Uh, my, my brain doesn't stop very much, right. but you know, honestly, some of the place I find the greatest sense of grounding is just with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, my, my kids are anytime somebody's like, Hey, we'll come hang out with you and your kids. I'm like, you're really brave because <laughs> it's, it's a lot, but they're also, they're also just the most terrific humans on the planet. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so much of where, where I could feel like maybe I could lose myself in some of this work. Um, it's like they, they kind of know who I am. And so yeah. being with, being with my family is really grounding for me. Mm, yeah. that That's great. Yeah. And also they don't care who I am. So yeah. like, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, right. I, I'm just dad and um, they don't expect me to know everything. They just, I get to be. Right that version of me and i just love it yeah they don't want to sit beside you because you're the pastor they want to sit beside you because you're dad right Right. yeah yeah what's been the most surprising thing about your adult life (sighs) that i've never actually felt like an adult yeah i relate to that tremendously you know like i ask people sometimes you know when does that because i remember watching my parents my parents were like 22 and 21 when i was born Mm-hmm. So my dad was my age when I was like almost graduating high school. Right. And yeah. they always just seemed like adults. Like they yeah. had this whole other, like they, they hit us, you know, when you're 18, you're 20, you have a kid, the switch flips and suddenly uh-huh. you're a grown up. And I asked people, what I'm finding out is I don't think it exists. Yeah. People are faking it. We're all faking it. Right. right. Deep down right. we're kids. And, yeah. and so for me that, that has been um, just surprising that I, I, I was afraid like when you become an adult, you stop being fun. Mm-hmm. And you stop having sort of, you know, you have to become this boring. And for me, it's been like, oh, no, I think now I'm I'm having more fun than I did when I was. Yeah. In my tw- I'm actually having more fun now yeah. than I did when I was in my 20s. And I think that's yeah. just that is terrific. Great. Yeah. And very much any room seven thing as well. Very right. Much. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. yeah. So what have you noticed about when, like your preaching style? Like how does your um, the aspects of being an Enneagram seven come into that? It, it, I've learned more from stand-up comedians than I have from good preachers. Mm, that's good. That's a great line. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I, I, I and so much of my preaching. What one of the hard things about the pandemic for me was having to be more manuscripted because there was nobody there. 
Yes, it's hard. Because yeah. generally, my sermons are, you know, I have an outline. I know where I'm going. There's content we're going to hit. But I really am responding in real time to whatever's happening in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't plan jokes and that sort of thing. It just sort yeah. of is a, right. I, I let my reflexes work. When I was really nervous, I was nervous when the pandemic started because I didn't know if I could preach to a camera. And then I was nervous when we were going to start in-person gatherings again. Because yeah. I, like, did I forget? Mm-hmm. And I also had covid Mm-hmm. Uh, last November, and mm. I was a long hauler, and so my, my uh, the fatigue and the shortness of breath, and I had brain fog for a good chunk of time. Wow. That when I would do a, a podcast like this during that time, I normally could just do what I'm doing now with you and just mm-hmm. go off the cuff on stuff. But I would have to make notes in between things because I would forget what I was going to say, or I would forget what they were even asking me. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately after, and it could just be a coincidence, but it seemed like after I got my second vaccine, that, huh. um, that's, that started to alleviate and I feel pretty normal now in oh, terms of all that. Yeah. That's scary. It was really yeah. scary. I, it was, yeah. it, I really struggled too. Like it was almost, it was, I think I was, was in a period of depression about it because there mm-hmm. was sort of like this thing that was always my thing, which is right. being able to just sort of go with it and extemporaneously figure it out. Like that yeah. was gone. And that was like, oh, how do I, I don't know how to do me, how to yeah. do me without that yeah. sort of right. thing I can do in the world. And right. it's been a joy to be able to slip back yeah. into that comfort mode. Oh, I <laughs> bet. Did your congregation open to the, your struggle and your depression during that time or having COVID? Were people very loving to you during that? People were, you know, they were very kind. I also um, didn't talk about, I mean, I didn't talk about it a lot when I was going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was processing how I felt about it. I've talked about it more on the other side of it. Gotcha. Um, I did, a, so I, I actually, the first Sunday of Advent, I had COVID and I recorded mm-hmm. the sermon anyway. Right. Um, and I remember somebody commented, he looks more pale than he usually does. <laughs> and somebody was like, that. that's because he has COVID. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think it's just amazing. It sounds like through your struggle with belief, your trauma in, in the compound grief. Like there is such an authenticity that came into your your essence, right? That attached to that so that you could just meet people where they are. Like what yeah, I, I, well, you know, I really that is my goal with people is just to meet yeah. them. Yeah. Not their, my expectation of them, mm. not other people's you know yeah. interpretation of them but like what if i just yeah. encounter this human being and yeah we'll go we'll just see who they are we'll discover who they are yeah. and yeah i feel like that's a gift to be able to do with people you know it is a gift yeah it's absolutely a gift it's really good well you're a gift i want to wrap up by putting you in the hot seat real quick and i'm okay. just going to ask you just a, a few questions just respond whatever comes to mind first um and we'll we'll use that put you in the hot seat real quick all right. So, first word that comes to mind when you hear COVID. Exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your playlist. I am an unapologetic, massive U2 fan. Yeah, I can see um, that in the background. Yeah, yeah, a friend of mine painted that. Uh, oh, that's great. Me. Yeah. So, you know, but generally, I, I'm... Like I like all sorts of things. So playlists for me will have some YouTube on it. I have a lot of nineties stuff on it. Like a lot of nineties rock. I now realize why my dad listened to Fleetwood Mac and the Doobie brothers and all that all the time when I was a kid. 
Yeah. Um, it's like, why doesn't he listen to new music? I get it now because my kids, <laughs> I, my oldest kids asking me the same question. So like, oh, great. you know, I yeah. still, I still love some Matchbox 20 and that sort of thing. All right. Um, I love Taylor Swift. I think uh-huh. Taylor Swift is absolutely incredible and mm. is still not even close to peaking. Right. Um, and I like, you know, kind of depressing stuff like, uh, you know, stuff that would have been cla- like, like Death Cab for Cutie is a band. I still really like, especially their acoustic stuff, which is just depressing. And I love it so much. Yeah, that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So man, I, I really am eclectic. You know, I like, I like rap, hip hop, R&B stuff too. Mm. So my, my playlist really will be like, you, you will never know right. what is coming on next right, okay. because it yeah. could be just anything. Yeah, that's great. All right. What is your favorite all-time movie? Oh, I'm afraid in so many ways, this is just going to be so disappointing for people. So I have a guess what it would be for you. And I just met you, but go ahead. Tell me what, wait, what is um, it? And, and you know what happens to me when somebody asks me this? The Enneagram mm-hmm. 7 kicks in and it's mm-hmm. hard to narrow it. Right. I feel like some days I would say my favorite movie of all time is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but then I also, I don't know that I have a favorite. I also, I love comedies. I, I mm. love comedies, but also yeah. like horror and, you know, I, yeah, I'm just, uh, yeah. I, if you put a movie on, I'll sit down and watch it. All right. Well, let me ask you, how many times have you seen Elf? Oh, love elf. Yeah, yeah. I knew I knew you had love elf. You were seven. Oh, yeah. Plus we it's watch a it, great movie. We watch it every so I have a list of movies that we just watch every Christmas. So that I uh-huh. some of them the kids don't watch because I am a f- like a complete believer that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And so like that, you know, Die Hard, Home Alone, <laughs> one and uh-huh. two, which you know, take me back to being a, a 10 year old. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, all those. And also, also another one that would be close to my top favorite movie of all time would be Ghostbusters. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great movies. I love that. That is so good. <laughs> all right. Last question for you. If you could give yourself a different name, what would you pick? Oh my gosh. That is an incredible, incredible question. Thank um, you. I don't know that I, I, I think that sometimes when I hear the name Josh, I think that's kind of a weird name, um, but I don't know what else to be. My middle name is Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times I thought when I was younger, like maybe I'll just go by Adam. Yeah. But I never was able to do it. If I got to pick <laughs> anything, I would probably do something like um, you two did with Bono and the Edge and come up with some other name like that. Like, yeah, <laughs> just right. totally out there. like. Um, Oh gosh, I don't even know. I don't yeah. even know. I couldn't. I couldn't pick. I couldn't pick another name for me. Um, yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, we'll just stick with Josh Scott because who you are is it. a gift, and I think you are absolutely amazing. I'm. I'm so glad that you're in the world, and you're in the world exactly the way that you are. And you and some other people know that they have a right to be in the fold and be who they are. So I thank you for that very much. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. Being here is an honor. This work is an honor. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep, we're just going to keep going. Keep doing the deal. Well, to all y'all that are listening to Josh Scott, I just want y'all to know, to check the notes, find out how you can find him on Facebook, on Instagram, other places, to subscribe to his emails, be a part of his world. He is teaching people daily for free because it's his heart. So I'm sure you've heard something today that flipped your lid and 
I'm also very sure this time you hear something to help you reconnect to who God really says you are. We'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today.